Hey, welcome back, everybody, to Backtrekking, the podcast where we look back at the real-world inspirations behind classic episodes of Star Trek. I'm one of your hosts, Caliban, and what I want to know is, how do you fake a leopard attack? I'm joined on this episode by my co-host. Hi, I'm uh, Gooey Fame, and I can feel it. (laughs) I can feel it coming. Uh, in space tonight. We've returned to explore the stories behind your favorite Trek tales, and today we're talking about two stories of artificial intelligences going rogue and how the humans they serve choose to cope with it. It's the 1968 sci-fi film classic 2001 A Space Odyssey and the fourth season Star Trek Discovery episode, But to Connect. I don't know if you heard the ellipses. I want to make sure that the ellipses came <laughs> I appreciate out. that. I appreciate the extra effort. But to Connect. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, uh, big one today, uh, and before I uh, get completely cowed by the idea of what we're talking about, uh, let's move directly on to talk about Halloween. How hey. was your Halloween? Uh, well, good. I watched the movie that we're going to be talking about. Oh, okay. And <laughs> yeah. so it wasn't, you know, I've actually was on a good streak of watching. I, I watched a lot more movies than normal this past month. A lot of, you know, spooky or spooky adjacent movies. Um, and you know, so this wasn't, it wasn't exactly that sort of vibe, but it's scary enough, but it, it fit, it fit perfectly in line, I think with the season. And then as soon as the movie was done, we look at our window and we've got some little Halloween lights and decorations up, but it was also extremely foggy outside. And it was like, Ooh, Ooh, it's a, it's a Halloween miracle. I said, (laughs) And so it was nice. Uh, it was nice. Yeah, a little bit of atmosphere. Yeah, it kind of dovetails into a, a conversation that we've had on the show before, which is like, can sci-fi be scary? You know, especially cerebral sci-fi. And I guess Hal is, in a way, a monster in this film, and he's kind of pulling off uh, scary things. There's there is a feeling of dread, certainly, both with you know the ominous way in which he. Um, starts to deal with the crew of the Discovery. Um, the discoveries in both of our uh, <laughs> entries today, I should point yes. out. Uh, not, not a coincidence. And um, and also, also, it's like he becomes the victim, you know? Uh, Dave becomes the monster later on when he's basically just like uh, taking an ax to his computer bank. And he's like, no, please, I'm scared. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, know, Dave. Yeah, it's sad. So both the aggressor and the victim, but aren't we all? In our own way. Yeah, very, uh, I feel like it's very human portrayal of the character, yeah. Speaking of aggressors who play victims, how's Twitter going for you? (laughs) Twitter is a whole new world now and a whole new universe. Or maybe it's the same hell site that it's ever been now that Elon Musk has uh, taken control of the site. Yeah, I mean, it's not, for me, it's not really been different. (laughs) I'm just posting the same thing. It's just people are complaining about who's in charge, but isn't. Isn't it always, I feel like it's always uh, going to be owned by some sicko anyway. So, you know, I wasn't like, oh, this is unlike the previous owner of Twitter, who I'm sure was awesome. It's Jack Dorsey was, was not great, uh, but he kind of, he pretended to be great. It's actually kind of fun so, just because we see, I see him pitching something new. He's going to roll oh out every God. day that obviously He's isn't going to happen. Ideas. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think and it's I, funny. I don't know which is worse, like the the guys like Jack Dorsey who, you know, ride a a cruelty-free electric cycle to work or whatever and pretend to be good, or just the mask-off weirdos like like Elon Musk 
and is apartheid wealth. I'm not sure which is worth worse. I guess I would probably guess the second one, but mm-hmm. um, something that I don't understand is I know that he, you know, when you drop $46 million on something, you basically own it, but they are publicly traded, right? So he does, like, doesn't he have, if as the majority shareholder, I guess, does he not have to listen to anybody? Don't they have to have shareholder meetings? Doesn't he have to run all of his dumb ideas by a board that's going to go, I don't know, why don't you just, like, you know, make another rocket or something? Like, well, that, that's kind of a dumb well, idea. Well, probably, and also, like, you know, he just can't do any of the things he probably wants to do. Oh, no. Everything. It's He is 100% talk. He is that kid in back in school who's like, yeah, my dad's an astronaut. You know, so he's gone a lot. You know, he's got a pretty cool car. And it's all this stuff. He's just lying. Everything he says is a lie. It's not true. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe there won't be any changes at all. He's already talked about wanting to democratize blue checks, which, of course, means that – And look, I'm not for elitism online, but if you democratize it and let people buy blue checks, then they don't really mean anything. They mean that you have $8 a month is what they mean. So I th- just I continuing think they do that. his streak of bad ideas. I think if you ideas. want a blue check so bad, you should lose – Well, he's monetizing. You should lose money. He wants more money. Yeah. <laughs> like he's – there are people who need money uh, who, who, who grift because, you know, the, the wolf's at the door and there's people who just have untold sums of wealth and yet they're still on that grind. And so you got to give him you got to give him that at least. I was thinking about like access and the fact that he wants to let everybody in and uh, and re- reduce restrictions. And somebody pointed out like the idea that when you see a article about how um, crime like hasn't gone up uh, appreciably uh, statistically or how um, some activist judge somewhere is like making it illegal to uh, talk to gay people or whatever. It's always like on Bloomberg.com and there's a paywall and you don't want to pay the paywall. So you just don't read the article. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, whereas whatever crazy, <laughs> whatever crazy claims that Newsback Max or Fox News is making about how black people smell different or whatever, there is never any paywall on those. You can get right through to that. And so, again, like, you know, there is no such thing as ethical capitalism, but we see how like the capitalist motive uh, puts restrictions on important information and makes trash free. Uh, and, you know, that's uh, that's a problem, too. And I wonder how that will uh compared to the signal-to-noise ratio that we're <laughs> uh, probably going to see change as Musk takes over on Twitter. I think there's some... I, I can't remember. This is not an original thought, but, like, someone pointed out that, like, the the idea of he wants to bring back, like, free speech and you can say whatever you want. It's like... Mo- I think most uh, sites that have tried to do that have all failed, you know, because of safety reasons or whatever. You know, you just can't... Yeah. No, or no one's going to want to advertise on your company where like, you know, death threats and like <laughs> doxing yeah. is allowed. So like he can't yeah. do bring back any of the people or like let them do the things people want them to do. Well, he can like there's been a great example of that just this past week. Like, welcome back to Twitter, Kanye West. Uh, you know, uh, homeless person uh, talking about the Jews, mm-hmm. basically. Like Kanye has essentially destroyed all of his uh, endorsement deals and his corporate connections with his loose talk. And so you can say whatever you want. Like that is, there is a freedom for speech. There's just not yeah. a freedom from, from consequence. So that's why I think like, don't get bent out of shape out about it. I think you should enjoy people who are like, Mr. Musk, can you look into this for me? And he'll be like, I am currently researching your claim or whatever. And it's like, just enjoy that. Cause he's yeah. like, you should know that he's lying yeah. to that person and you should enjoy 
that all these idiots think he's going to help them. I think that's... I want to see, <laughs> yeah. He starts off like, you know, I will personally be reviewing every single one of these. And yeah, then like, okay. you know, how soon he how soon he quits and just hands it off to the board of moderation that he wants to... He's, he I don't even think he's going to try it. <laughs> he's probably not even going to try it. Yeah, why Why even bother? Plenty of more terrible th- ideas to come the up The worst with. thing that can happen is the site shuts down, and that's not even a bad thing. <laughs> like, I saw... Um, uh, well, the worst thing that can happen is that he can platform, you know, a bunch of these uh, cuckoo birds, you know, yeah. already we're going into the midterm elections and then we've got a presidential and another set of elections coming up in two years. Yeah. Well, I think, I think though, like, like we said, like, I don't, I think that most of that stuff, like, well, I guess there's, there's already, I think the amount of like misinformation or whatever will probably stay a, a, probably a healthy amount to the same which is not good, you know, but I think that's already well, kind of an issue on this, all these sites, you know. Yeah, it kind of gets to the core of like, what is your opinion then about um, the the platforms that these these kooks have? Like when uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about Jewish space lasers, is she just talking to the people who already believe that or is she converting people who are sort of on the fringe? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there's some people, yeah, who probably are like, well, yeah. There's a lot of you know, I do my own research type people, and their research yeah. is reading these weird Facebook or Twitter threads, you know. Yeah, because I mean, if you take away her access to online platforms, she's going to go stand on a on a street corner with a mm-hmm. bullhorn and just say the exact same thing. Right. Yeah. And you know, uh, we have people like that in my town, <laughs> and I and I you know walk away. I cross the other, other side of the street. Like people like that exist. But we can't, I don't think, argue the influence that uh, people like this can have. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no. No, I just, what I, what I, my argument was more that that's, it's already pretty bad. And that's not going to change with just like, I think it'll change marginally. It'll probably be a little bit worse. But I think overall, what I think actually needs to happen is the internet and social media should be democratized and not run by like these companies, these weirdos, you know. Well, overall, you know, capitalism in general, I think, is bad for the spread of information. And I think whether it changes hands from Musk to someone else, like, I think it's going to be generally be shitty. Yeah, it'll it's just going to be some, you know, it's it's like Facebook or whatever has been the same run by the same guy forever. And it's a horrible cesspool, you know. Yeah. And they they shouldn't get to decide. They shouldn't get to decide that stuff. I think that that. uh I don't know. The internet should is like a public service, and I think it should be. Uh, personally, I think it should be nationalized or something like that. I'm not like that smart. Well, so. yeah, well, uh, yeah. I don't disagree uh, in practice. You know, if you think about something, and it, this feels familiar. We might have talked about this on the show before, but like at this point, when you've got something like Facebook, when you've got something like um, Twitter. Uh, when you've got like one major avenue to communicate with other people that has this, th- th- that's when we talk about nationalization, mm-hmm. right? Like if you wanted to call grandma back in the day and Ma Bell said that'll be 50 bucks to talk to grandma on Thanksgiving, you're like, I don't have any other way to talk to her. I, it's a phone. And so the government says, no, this is now regulated, right? right. If not nationalized outright. And so, yeah, I mean, if there's only Facebook, uh, which is the way that we talk to grandma now, uh, or Twitter, the way that we talk to friends and other people, maybe that's true. I think, you know, if the market was really working, then 
somebody could just say, okay, obviously Twitter is the premier place where this all happens. They might have patents that make Twitter work that aren't accessible or could be licensed to other people for a lot of money. But some other billionaire would just create something. And they've tried to do that with things like Parler and, and Telegraph and whatever, and it, it doesn't really work. And even like former owners of Twitter, people like Jack Dorsey have been very, even though he's nominally like a liberal, although he's a rich person first, of course, he's uh, been very very reluctant to deplatform people because he wants everybody to have access to his thing. He doesn't want some other rich person to go, well, you know what? I'm going to make another thing, a competitor for Twitter. If there's no competitor, then yeah, he has a monopoly on the on the social economy. Yeah. So... I don't know, man. Until until if Elon had just made his own thing, he could have done it for however much money he wanted to and uh, maybe had a Twitter competitor. But instead, he uh, he talked shit and uh, he got hit. Well, and now I don't think he owns that's why is I don't think he ever <laughs> wanted to run his own thing. I think he barely even wanted to run Twitter. You know what I mean? Like, I think it was yeah. just talking shit because everyone hates him and he's yeah. tired of seeing logging on and. He's like, oh, I just want to post memes, and he logs on, and it's about like probably four thousand people saying, like, "Fuck you, shut memes. the hell up," you know. Yeah, he entered Twitter headquarters carrying a sink, <laughs> so he could yeah. say, "Elon's here, let that sink in." It's just like, <sighs> wow, uh, we are approaching levels of cringe unknown. Yeah, that's true too. To humanity. Yeah, yeah, that'll be point. very. It's going to be very embarrassing. For sure. So, all right. Well, <laughs> I can't wait till he falls on his face and then, you know, <laughs> nukes somebody or does something else stupid. Uh, but uh, we'll we'll have an update of uh, when that happens, of course, on the show, uh, because this is Elon Trekking. Uh, but let's just uh, get into it and get into our featured subject for this week's episode. And I mean, I'll say it. How do you talk about 2001? It's one of, if not the most influential science fiction films of all time. It was directed by one of the most influential filmmakers of all time, written by one of the most influential authors of all time. It's got some of the most iconic visuals of all time, some of the most quotable lines of all time, and one of the most unforgettable soundtracks of all time. (laughs) But to connect. The vast amount of words written about 2001 is inversely proportional to the film's terse dialogue. There's a lot of silence in this film, I'm telling you. Something that's not often highlighted, however, is the film's connection to the world of Star Trek. Both were released in the late 1960s, during the race to space and the moon by the world's powers. Both deal not with the laser-zappy, alien-infested stories of pulp sci-fi, but are instead a deeper exploration of man's connection to the cosmos and to other life forms and to themselves. And Gene Roddenberry has specifically cited the influence of Kubrick's film in the philosophy and feel of Star Trek, sharing Clark's disdain for mysticism and religion, his objective view of a universe without humanity at its center, and even the idea of a prime directive that respects the autonomy of other races. It might not be the best podcast episode of all time, but let's have a discussion (laughs) about 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh yeah, could it could we even achieve best podcast about 2001 of all time? I think that's probably even we, hard. We can try. We <laughs> can right, try. Well, I'll um, give it my best. I'm not going to make excuses. There was I was not going <laughs> to do anything. I was not going to like look up anything. I mean, I watched the movie and I kind of noodled around on the Wikipedia, but I wasn't going to like go too deep because I wanted to just talk about the film because we're never going to cover everything. Yeah. But just by happenstance, um What's that podcast? Blank Check 
the movie podcast just covered this because they're covering uh, Kubrick. And they had a similar sort of attitude. They're like, I don't know. What do we what do we even do, talk about? Like, what do we do? Like, wow. It's just been covered. But luckily, we have a connection specifically to the world of Star Trek. There's a famous thing that Arthur C. Clarke said, a quote of his, that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. That always gets touted around. Uh, But he also said something else about alien life. He said that there's two possibilities. We're either alone in the universe or we're not. And both are terrifying. And Mm. that communicates that idea of being afraid of the unknown, you know, being afraid of the possibility of the unknown or the possibility of nothingness. Either there are other aliens out there that are strange to us, that might be hostile to us, that might be far advanced in technology, or even be uh, less developed than us and then present us a moral quandary in how we deal with them. Or there's the idea that we're just kids in a big empty warehouse and there is nothing here and there will be nothing and we will come and we will go and that will be it. Like both of those things are like psychically horrifying. Yeah. And I like, I like that the movie, the movie does convey that sort of dread or like that feeling of what either could mean. And I like that. Um, it sort of even makes it, it makes it seem that like, um, it's just so it's ambiguous. So it's just kind of like either either could even be true and give you almost the exact same feeling, you know? Yeah. Um, something that he focused on in some of his stories and specifically the story of the Sentinel, which was like the inspiration for uh, this film, is the idea that, you know, there's the old... Um, old i mean there's the i guess it's old the 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 fermi paradox the idea of where is everybody right like if we know that there are millions of planets and millions of solar systems and there's been plenty of time uh look how far we've come you know in the few billion years that we've had as organisms then we should see somebody even with the distances involved we should see something and clark was specifically focused on the idea not that we would necessarily see other aliens, you know, beep booping around, but we would see evidence of them. We'd see their artifacts. We'd see their technology. We'd see their probes. We'd see something. And in his story, The Sentinel, um, it specifically deals with that. Um, It's set on the moon, um, probably around, you know, the time that this movie came out Mm -hmm. or was set, you know, in the the early uh, 21st century. And it's about an astronaut who sees something weird on the moon and he goes and like to check it out and it's like this weird artifact it's like this pyramid and he realizes oh shit like we we're wondering if we're alone in the universe they've already been here like there is dust on this thing from millions of years ago like they came and went a long time ago so it's kind of having your cake and eating it too as far as that question goes like there are other aliens mm-hmm. there are other people in the in the universe but we are also alone because of the vast distances and the vast distances of time between not us not only that but i i think to what i was kind of what i was trying to say earlier is that like even though like in the movie for example even though like we find these um uh obelisks or whatever and similar to the pyramid we think you know this is they say this is proof of uh you know, existence, uh, in other worlds, but like when someone, when, uh, the character goes into it, like he can't even comprehend like what is happening or what it is, you know? So I feel like that's just as scary too, is like 
they're, they've come and gone yeah. and we like don't even we can't even really tell like <laughs> you know what is this yeah that's the kind of and you know you have to read um clark's other fiction to get more of an idea of uh, you know his idea of the connection uh, or the meetings between aliens and humans but i think that's the sort of um the sort of clinical cynicism of of stanley kubrick coming through uh the idea that you know we we then make this connection and uh dave doesn't know what's going on and apparently the the aliens don't know what to do with him <laughs> like you know they just uh give him some dinner uh and he's living in a in a in a weird room uh, and then he dies but then he does become a space baby at the end and it's almost the kind of careful optimism of clark and the sort of galactic cynicism of kubrick join forces in that ending to make it completely ambiguous cuz space baby's back and are we in trouble or is he going to help us all? Do you know what I mean? And and there are more books and there are more movies. But if you just consider this thing as an artifact into itself, like, what does it mean? Like, mm-hmm. where are they going? Is the space baby good? Yeah. Well, I think that even... Is the space baby good? <laughs> that's, that's, that's a uh, t-shirt. That's probably like, if the movie came out now, it, there would be an article called 2001 Ending Explained, colon, Is the Space Baby Good? Oh and it, yeah, it would and, be and, trying to answer right. all of this canonically, <laughs> right? And there wouldn't even be a space baby until like season three. Like at the end, in a in a post credit scene at the end of the first season, somebody would go, "What's a space baby?" <laughs> and then we would have to build up to where the space baby is. Yes. But first, we have to see how Hal is built, though. Do you think it's meant to? Because like, I mean, there's a connection there about like. The first time there's the obelisk there. I'm sh- I don't I don't know what analysis has been done on this movie before other than talking endless, to my friends. Endless analysis. But like, yeah. OK, so the obelisk shows up. It's the dawn of man or whatever. And uh, the, the, like these apes, essentially, you know, it's like the start of our using tools to kill stuff or whatnot. So sure. it's it could just be saying like maybe maybe it's not even like a moral judgment on if it's good or bad. It's just, it's changed. Like apes eventually changed into humans and now humans are changing into something else. I mean, it's not even, yeah, like a moral thing. It's just showing like, Hey, things are, you know, like life evolves and changes and goes different ways. Yeah. And what is the source of that change and that evolution? What, what is the power behind it obviously it's survival you know just the sort of um just the the inner workings uh and the expression of evolution but it's almost like this when i was watching the i've seen you know we've all seen this a million times and so i was watching Mm -hmm. it recently and i hadn't seen it in a while and i was just thinking like it's like yeah the the chip well the chimps see the the chimps whatever they are australopithecus early man they see the monolith and they don't know what it is and they aren't like immediately bowing to it they don't like treat it like a god but it's kind of like a science god you know what i mean mm-hmm. it sort of gives them fire in a way it gives them like the knowledge of tools and f- you know in the future of the film there is this being out in space that we're looking to to reach and it just makes me think like sci- this is science god that we're talking about here, even though Clark was not religious. And he said specifically, like, when I die, I don't want a funeral. I don't want anything. Just put me in the ground. <laughs> you know, Give me a nice headstone. And that's it. Like, I'm not into this. And Kubrick was uh, also uh, an atheist. But but it's interesting how they want to make this 
they collaborated on this narrative that is really a search for God. Um, Kubrick said in an interview with Rolling Stone uh, that the, uh, quote, on the deepest psychological level, the film's plot symbolizes the search for God, and it postulates what is little less than a scientific definition of God. It revolves around the metaphysical conception and the hardware and the documentary feelings uh, that uh, about everything that was necessary to undermine the built-in resistance to the poetical, con- poetical concept. So he wanted to take a film that isn't just like, oh, my my father is dying of cancer, and yet I meet someone, and ultimately I you know feel closer to God. Like he was trying to get rid of all that um, lyrical, poetical stuff and search for God, but start off by saying, look, forget about God. I w- I want to make a film that is about the search for meaning and understanding in the universe. Now, people who are religious would say, well, that's just, you're just searching for God. But he's proposing the idea that, no, I can search for that. Just because I'm an atheist doesn't mean I can't search for, you know, a higher medical, physical feeling uh, in my life. Yeah. And I and think... I, and I, I kind of like that. He's like taking some of that real estate back from uh, something that's more uh, yeah. enthusiastical in nature. I think it shows, yeah, that how you can um, draw meaning from like like scientific reality, you know, like th- like things that we do know and how you can find meaning in what we do know and understand without, you know, without jumping to uh, conclusions about, you know, creators and stuff like that. Yeah. And it, we'll talk about it more later, but it, it also occurs to me that like, if you want to connect this to Star Trek, you know, the monolith aliens are kind of like, the Star Trek people. They're like the Federation. And we're kind of like the um, the uncontacted, you know, species. They're sort of like doing the, sure, they, you know, initially sort of uplift us by giving us tools. I, that's interference, I guess. But then they sort of step back and go, all right, when they make it to the moon and they uncover this thing, then, you know, it'll send us a signal and say, yeah, yeah, now they're, they're, they're spacefaring now. So maybe you want to go back and, and see what's going on with them at that point. That's something that is repeated endlessly in Star Trek. Yeah, I sort of wonder, too, if it, like, if in the movie, like, you could even say, like, are they bringing bringing these tools? Or I feel like it could just be, like, they just, well, maybe it's just both. They symbolize, like, the ushering in of a new era, you know? So, like, they, they might not even be, like, doing anything. It's probably, I think it's just portraying... Like, you can take that in a very non-literal way. It, it doesn't have to be the movie saying, like, these are gods, necessarily. Yeah. Maybe they're just aliens that we haven't figure out, figured out how to talk to. Yeah. In the later books, there's, you know, there's a 2010, there's a 2061, and there's a 3001 uh, that Clark wrote. And they don't relate. They relate differently to uh, the novelization of the film and the film itself. But there does develop a, a more of an idea of... The aliens want to like connect with us, but they're also sort of watching us. You know, if we're going to do something crazy, like try to nuke, if we're going to become a dangerous species, then then they're going to take us out. And so that is sort of there. This was, of course, written at the dawn or this was like written and conceived under the threat of nuclear annihilation, I guess, but still at the sort of tail end of the optimism of the atomic age. But of course, as you know, the years went on, I think Clark was like, no, no, it's probably a mutually assured destruction metaphor. Um, let's talk about Clark. You know, he is one of the big three of 20th century science fiction. Uh, the two others being Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein, who we've both uh, talked about on the show previously. 
Um, unlike the other two of the big three, uh, he's seemingly completely unproblematic in contrast to them. So there's nothing to really <laughs> talk about. Uh, in fact, he was gay, or at least he had relationships with both men and women. Uh, when journalists asked if he was gay, he'd say, no, I'm just mildly cheerful. Uh, he was married briefly in 1953, uh, but remained separated from his wife until their divorce was finalized in 1964. And in 1956, he emigrated to Sri Lanka to continue writing and open a, open a scuba diving school. He really liked scuba diving uh, and actually made a couple like discoveries in the uh, in the area. Oh, um, and we don't know awesome. much else. Yeah, he was always <laughs> like, because like when you think of, you know, they train astronauts in water and water is, of course, you know, the ocean is like the undiscovered. Uh, sort of frontier on earth. So I think that that fits. We don't know much else about his personal life um, and it would be irresponsible to speculate. Um, But he did live with a Sri Lankan man in the 70s and he was actually buried alongside him after his death in 2008. And I've seen it speculated that Clark moved to Sri Lanka because they didn't have the UK's draconian laws against LGBTQ individuals. But I have not been able to back that up with any research into attitudes Mm. about homosexuality in Sri Lanka. In fact, as a colonial territory of the UK, I would assume they would have the exact same laws. And I think that speculation connected to that is, you know, connected to the perception of the South Seas as being a haven for sex tourism. And lest you you think that Elon Musk has ever done anything original in his life— uh, the British tabloid The Mirror accused Clark of paying Sri Lankan boys for sex in 1998, which led to the cancellation of his planned knighthood by Prince Charles that year. But the Sri Lankan government found the claim to be completely baseless, and The Mirror apologized, and Clark was subsequently knighted in the year 2000. Oh, right on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, glad it worked out, I guess. Yes. So <laughs> He got that knighthood. I'm sure that was very important. Thumbs up. Yeah. So we've got everything flipped around here. Let's talk about how his life began. Uh, He was born in 1917 and raised in Somerset, England, and was interested in space and sci-fi from an early age. And he loved American pulp magazines. And he attributed his interest in science fiction specifically to reading three things. Uh, The November 1928 issue of Amazing Stories. That must have been a good one. Uh, The book Last and First Men by Olaf Stapledon. And The Conquest of Space by author David Lasser. He served in the RAF in World War II as a radar specialist, and he eventually reached the rank of flight lieutenant. And after the war, he got a degree in mathematics, and he became a president of the British Interplanetary Society. He also wrote a number of nonfiction technical books related to rocketry and spaceflight. And he was pivotal in the development of the science of using geostationary satellites as communication devices and also in the promotion of the exploration of space. Reportedly, it was his 1951 book, The Exploration of Space, that Werner von Braun used to convince Kennedy that the U.S. could go to the moon in the 60s. And he himself was a commentator for CBS News during the space race and specifically during the Apollo 11 moon landing. Um, So he was something of an early science communicator at that time, and he hosted a series of TV programs about scientific topics in the 80s and 90s. Uh, Some of his most famous works were written in the 50s, uh, like The City and the Stars, Childhood's End, and A Fall of Moon Dust, which came out in 1961. In 1948, he wrote a short story for a BBC contest called The Sentinel. The story was rejected, but it would go on to form the basis of his novelization of 2001 A Space Odyssey and of the film itself. Uh, In 1964, Clark met with Stanley Kubrick, and at this time... This is post-Dr. Strangelove. Kubrick uh, decided that he wanted to make the quote-unquote 
proverbial good science fiction film. Uh, emphasis emphasis <laughs> okay. on the proverb, the idea that Stanley Kubrick has not done a sci-fi film yet, so we're going to make this a good one. And after working together, they settled on The Sentinel as the inspiration for the story, <laughs> although uh, several other Clark stories, namely the short story Encounter in the Dawn, provided a framework during their brainstorming sessions. Uh, they decided to try and write a novel and let the novel and the process of writing it inspire the shape of the film which might have been a little optimistic because, first, it's no easy thing to write a book, especially one with the scope of 2001. And, of course, many of the elements of a film have to be worked out in pre-production long before the film's ever shot. So the book and the screenplay were developed essentially at the same time, uh, leading to some discrepancies uh, between the narrative of the film and the narrative of the book. But essentially, they are kind of the same thing. And I've read, I don't think Kubrick has said this, but I think Clark has said this, that you know, when you, you should watch the film and then if you've got questions, you should read the book. Uh, and then if you're confused, oh, you should okay. watch the film. And then if you enjoyed the film, you should read the book. So Clark has always been very uh, positive uh, and kind of bullish about their uh, collaboration. Kubrick, uh, maybe not so much. <laughs> I think I think Kubrick had this idea to make the science fiction film and he didn't exactly know what he was getting into. Um I think at one point he actually wanted to, he got frustrated with Clark and wanted to like replace him as the consultant and ended up going to a lot of people in the industry who were, of course, Clark's friends, people like Michael Moorcock uh, and Heinlein and was like, what, do you want to work on this? And they're like, uh, I'm not going to take my friend's job. <laughs> you know, go back, go back and work with him again. Like, we're not going to. So, we're not gonna... so he did not like working with him. No, no, but he also did. He, not, he didn't like working with anybody. At one point they, um, they brought in Carl Sagan uh, to consult because Carl Sagan, of course, was also kind of a science communicator and author, and they wanted to figure out what the aliens would look like. That was really important. And Sagan basically told them, like, look, you know, knowing what we know about how weird aliens would be and also the what we've seen of aliens in past films, you probably should just not depict them or at least depict them very abstractly because otherwise it's going to seem silly. Anything's going to seem silly or dated in a short amount of time. And Kubrick was like, oh, fuck that. <laughs> Kubrick was all mad about that. And so he went back and tried to go through a couple different designs. And at one point he wanted to have like a ballet dancer be a representative of the alien. And then eventually mm. he realized that Sagan was right. And it was like, yeah, I'll, I was just, say, kinda... I'll just have them be in the background of what's going on. Yeah. So, it sounds like he got frustrated, but then, like, he was like, he'll, he's willing to accept a good idea. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> also, you know, people have argued back and forth about him being uh, an egomaniac, and certainly his imprimatur is on all of his films. Like, this is a Stanley Kubrick, Kubrick production. This isn't a collaboration. The buck stops here. He famously won the Academy Award for his supervision of the visual effects, which is ironic because uh, working under him and supervising those effects was Douglas Trumbull, the guy who would go on to influence every single sci-fi and space movie ever <laughs> after this, uh, who himself never won an Academy Award uh, for anything. Uh, so I uh, didn't give credit so where credit's due. It's Stanley's show and Stanley's shop. Yeah. But I do think that if ultimately he knows like what a good idea is and he's so like, yeah, fine. Well, all right. Yeah. It's funny you said he's like, okay, I'm going to make the uh, whatever the 
perfect sci-fi movie. Like he did kind of call his shot a little bit and it worked, you know. It, and it did. And the, yeah, you're right. You're right. Like and the reason... he, did he say that before, like The Shining, too? Because I feel like that's also the case. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. You got to well, give him some credit here. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to. Well, it's so this movie was somewhat mixed in its reception. Many of Kubrick's films have been mixed in their reception. So if you want to come on Craft of Services and, and talk about uh, how Kubrick's uh, mystique contributes to the appreciation of his films. Uh, I'm totally open to that. Okay, uh, yeah. That being said, uh, I don't know. I think that the artistry, the clear artistry on display has helped this film in its, um, uh, in its continuing uh, people's continuing appreciation of it. Um, I think it's um, the idiosyncratic uh, d- depiction of its world, you know, at this time. And I think that, this they, they've said so why did kubrick want to make a space movie it's been um theorized that it was specifically um films like the forbidden planet you know possibly the previous quote unquote good science fiction movie um the scope of it the themes that it attacks it isn't just a mm-hmm. monster from space you know with a big eye like it is dealing with kind of deeper themes uh, it's very expensive and very nice looking. Um, the idea of that also apparently like the 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 filmmaking and the cinematography behind some of the um, the Japanese like kaiju movies of the time, the sort of like widescreen bombast of like Godzilla um, films like Warning from Space, um, all of these things we think because he never really said were sort of you know bubbling in his mind when he went you know I want to make like this huge cinemascope you know, widescreen, um, epic, um, that's all kind of in the mix, I think, uh, when he sits down to say, okay, but what's it going to be about? And we talked about, you know, him working with Clark. Um, also, uh, Chariots of the Gods was released in 1968 as well. Um, the book that like suggests that, or basically collects a bunch of ideas about how humanity may have been influenced by, uh, ancient astronauts, you know, aliens coming to us in olden timey days, um, which came out concurrently with Trek. But I think those ideas definitely influenced Trek in episodes like Who Mourns for Adonais, um, mm-hmm. the one with the um, with the Sargon, uh, Return to Tomorrow, I think. Uh. Um, <laughs> uh, or, or Cat's Paw. I always go to Cat's Paw. <laughs> right. Cat's. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you can never go wrong going to Cat's Paw. Giant, giant, uh, giant cats. It's just a, it's a huge episode, whether people want to admit it or not, you know? You know, it, it is. <laughs> we talked about it last year for Halloween. Uh, yeah. But, but it, it is. It's just too bad that it's so c- sillily executed, you know? <laughs> it's 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 kind of silly and strange, and you got a guy wearing a Gill- Gilligan's Island costume and a, and a black cat and a witch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, but the underlying ideas are interesting that there are these like aliens that exist in sort of a mental space and they're sort of, you know, connecting with something deeper uh, in the psychology of humanity. Yeah. Which is what which is what we get in like the last maybe 10, 15 minutes of this movie. But there's a lot that happens before we get there. Yeah, no, it's almost like a bunch of little vignettes, too, which I think is cool. Like there's a bunch yeah. of movies within the movie almost. <laughs> If this was made now, you would say, you know, act, act one, 
the dawn of man you know it is essentially broken up into acts by by the title cards but you'd be a little more self-conscious about that each does kind of propel the overall theme themes forward and the story forward you know what i mean like they all feel like one it does feel like one story even though it's like first we're first it's a nature documentary then it's uh, about some guy and then it's about these other guys you know it's like yeah yeah no one like that's that's i feel like no one would watch this and like i don't know i i feel like this is like um criticism proof you know what i mean <laughs> maybe that's well, just yeah me watching it and like knowing what i know about the movie but just feels it, like well, it's so different than what yeah. people would expect from a movie today but i can't i also cannot imagine someone complaining about it and if they do, I would I would lose my oh, mind. Oh man, it sucks. <laughs> well, I mean, you could say that it's it's slow, it's a little too um, cerebral and, and cold emotionally, certainly. But it has almost, you know, it's got over fifty years of plot armor of being, um, you know, one of the main characters of cinematic history <laughs> at this point. Yeah, yeah, it's um, the main character syndrome. But I do think that like it, I think. It being so successful, so well known, and so widely watched, and also being very esoteric, it prop. And once again, here we are. We haven't even talked about the plot yet. We're talking about just the ramifications and the effects of the film. Like, that's what I was worried about. But I think that it has contributed to film analysis in that it isn't that tough to figure out what's happening. But if you just watch the movie and you don't think about how things are connected, you're like, why are we doing cavemen? Okay, astronauts, I get this. He's flying through Laser Floyd or something, and then he's eating dinner or something, right? If you don't, like looking back now, you know, every um, film school kid, you know, the it's printed on the top of the syllabus. Like it's the dawn of man, it's the evolution of man's, you know, instrumentality and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, we, we understand all that. But if you just watch this in 1968, you know, uh, uh, with a belly full of pie, you'd be like, what the hell is going on? What is any of this here? Yeah, yeah. It it could be maybe it is just because I've seen it before or something like that. But. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those things that you can't remove your knowledge of it. Like you, you just get like, oh, the bone is the spaceship. Like I got it. Though I I can I remember I don't know. I watched this when I was really dumb for the first time, <laughs> like <laughs> dumber too. than I am now, <laughs> and I still remember just at the time. Maybe it's because it has the mystique too. Because you're you're saying someone at the time, but I I I don't know. I just remember watching it. And it all all clicking. And I felt like I felt smart when I first watched it because <laughs> it was like he- esoteric or whatever. But like, I got it. Like everything clicked. That was like yeah. a movie that even when I was at my dumbest, it like it was like, whoa, <laughs> I feel that way about David Lynch's stuff. I love David Lynch. Yeah. And I love I love him for a lot of reasons. But I do. You watch some of his stuff and you go, what? But then which is, you just watch it again or maybe you read a little article about it and you're like, oh, everything, all the symbols in his films and like what they're about is so clear. They're just obscured by little people actors dancing or like a cowboy or something like that. Like they aren't that tough to figure out. And maybe that maybe that contributes to their popularity and their acceptance. I don't know. Maybe that's true of this as well. But I definitely, the first time I watched it, I was I didn't really get it, and I was just scared of Hal. <laughs> like, I just uh-huh. thought that Hal was the idea of a, a computer. True. Your house, your spaceship essentially trying to kill you was, was uh, kind of scary to me. I, um, I think um, what 
really the first time I watched it uh, got me thinking about it is that that part of the movie it, it is so long. <laughs> like, you know, the the amount with the apes that when I first saw it, I was like, I was like, this ape stuff is going on for a while. This has got to mean something. And I was like, <laughs> immediately, <laughs> I was like, this is something's fishy here. But it immediately right, got me thinking about like, hold it right there, apes. I was like, oh, it's like, you know, that then the, it clicked in my head. I was like, oh, it's symbolic. And I was like, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. so smart. <laughs> One more word about critics and then we'll move on to something else. But it, it's funny that the the interpretation or at least the reception of the film between the audience and the critics was very different. And I think for that reason, we got to do this on 2001 at some point. So, you know, book something early next year mm. and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do it. But uh, critics saw critics in light of his last film, Dr. Strangelove saw it as a very pessimistic tale that the space baby was here to to smack Earth around, like, look out, Earth, this is it for you. Like, this is your apotheosis. But audiences saw it as being optimistic that, you know, he was being reborn, that he was there to effect some change, to do something for Earth. And one thing that Kubrick did throughout the making of the film was remove things to make it more obscure. He took all the all the texts, all the Rosetta Stones away. You know, Clark is um, not necessarily a wordy guy, but he definitely had dialogue, he had descriptions, and Kubrick purposefully took out as much as possible, even to the point where near the end, you know, in the final cut, he took out the specificity of the space stations that we see at the beginning of the, of the uh, modern sequence being orbital weapons platforms. You know, this is a world where they don't have the um, the orbit the space uh, weapons treaties or salt or start or anything like that. So like the Cold War has continued into 2001, and we're literally pointing nukes at each other, you know, from space. And you know, one of the scripted I don't think shot, but one of the scripted final scenes was that the Star Child would return and would destroy these orbital platforms with its power. Uh, and it was a very you know anti-war tale. Um, in the vein of a Dr. Strangelove. But Kubrick said, no, 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 let's take that out. Let's have people just, we're going to ask them a question. The question is space baby. The answer is up to the audience. Yeah. And just, it, it really actually, I think is in line more than with like the idea of questioning the nature of humanity in that it's, it's a little bit more vague and up, up to interpretation. Whereas if you're talking about like an anti-war thing like that's a part of it but it feels a little bit more specific yeah if and and i think that kubrick that's i think that's the way that's the way that he wants to communicate ideas but it works out to making his films very attractive as well if dr strangelove had just been a harangue about how futile war is which i mean it essentially is but it's all cloaked in like this black comedy um it becomes very entertaining and attractive and if this had been if the baby had been like don't do the nukes you know, at the end, uh, it would have been much less fascinating and successful. And we've got an example. We've got 2010, the year we make contact, the uh, the follow up, 1984 follow up, uh, which is fun. I like it. I think it's a fun 1980s sci fi movie, but it is much more like don't do the nukes, don't do it, uh, yeah. and not quite as uh, as alluring and um, and mesmerizing as 2001 is. Yeah, there's definitely room for 
that kind of story but i feel like the way i just feel like the way this communicates that stuff more ambiguously it like serves this movie very well you know yeah how how do you fake a leopard attack um hmm. these are these are these are men these are actors in ape costumes right just just hanging around and then at one point uh a leopard attacks one and just goes ham on this guy and it's like I don't there's no stunt leopard like it's not he's not it doesn't come out of the trailer you just sick a leopard on a guy right I hope that guy did somebody interview that guy did he survive that did we check on that guy is he okay it was a trained animal an actor leopard I, speaking of alien movies and we don't understand aliens, I don't know if you've seen Nope, but it's you know <laughs> you got to be careful with uh, with real life wild yeah. animals. Is but there that, just hit, any... that hit me a lot different than any past viewing? <laughs> Actually, do, does anyone know who that was or like what his deal? Yeah, was? I, I don't know. I I, I gotta I I, I don't I, I love knowing things about things, but I often resist being the person who just dives all the way down to bedrock. You know, uh, with all the facts. Who was the leopard attack ape? (laughs) I'm glad I I don't necessarily recommend it, but I am speaking of Kubrick, but um, I'm glad that I watched the documentary Room 237 uh, to know what it looks like when you reach conspiracy bedrock uh, Mm. in terms of like uh, filmmaking and what people are trying to communicate through media. Did you ever see that? No, I I actually I want to see that, but I've never seen it. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird. <laughs> but anyway, um, I don't know. I hope Leopard Guy's okay. He's probably alive. He's probably still. all right. Uh, yeah. So you know, pretty straightforward. The the now straightforward. The uh, sequence uh, with the ape men at the beginning, um, translating to the modern, or I guess for us, the future. Nope. Now it's the past, isn't it? Oh, oh time's funny, isn't it? That that reminds me is another reason that it it makes me think of them more as like kind of just being there for these changes of eras is that like they come and they do their thing and like, yeah, they admit their signal. Maybe their signal is just like giving knowledge or something. But I think what's like, what is important in both times, like they show up in the monoliths, like he is that like (laughs) what actually changes, it doesn't come until like later. You know what I mean? So uh-huh. like it's like it's like they're doing their thing, the noise happens, and then like later on, that's when some guy figures out, oh, I can use a club, and then on the in the moon thing, it's like, oh, they, uh, they see the monolith, and then it's like cut to sixteen months later, yeah. and now we're having like whatever the next phase it, it, right now, you know. Yeah, and it's you know there is um, um. In several of Kubrick's films, I think he um, lampoons uh, or sends up uh, bureaucracy. You know, there, um, Doctor Strange, Love, uh, Clockwork Orange. You know, um, people making decisions and making bad decisions, and by committee. And in this, uh, you know, we have like a scene like that at the beginning when Haywood goes to the Space Council on the Moon or whatever, and he does. He's not really doing that, but it's interesting that they then send. Poole and Bowman out to Jupiter on this mission and they don't tell them anything. And sure, it's sensitive. They don't want this this information to get out. But I wonder if that's a commentary on, you know, the sort of military industrial complex or the way that 
um, humans are kind of suspicious of each other during the Cold War in that they've only told the computer <laughs> what the real mission is. And it isn't until they get there that the little uh, VHS tape says, okay, so here's the real deal. Uh, but by then, of course, it's almost, you know, it's dramatically ironic that it's just way too late for that information well, to really help anything. So that's then the question I have. This is maybe too much of the uh, ending explained question. But so what <laughs> what do you think the mission was? To find out what the monolith is, what what's going on okay. on Jupiter. I, I thought maybe, too, there was like, um, I know, like, because it's sending all the scientists, but I, I thought, like, the fact that they... The fact that they like couldn't tell them and the computer was clued in led me to believe that like maybe there was a larger plan that they had enacted that was going to involve Hal maybe even like communicating with them or something and that they never got to do that obviously because he like killed everybody. <laughs> yeah. And I think in a different movie, I would say lesser, but in a different movie, uh, there would be a late second act reveal where Hal says that there's a speech about it. They read, they see a video or read the orders about that. I think that's definitely no. possible. Yeah. Um, well, was, but we don't get that. I was yeah. thinking more, it was meant to like symbolize that like how is, is a key component of this. And maybe that that is similar to like monolith bone. Maybe you have monolith like AI communication or something, you know? Maybe I'm digging too much into it, but I feel like like Hal or like AI is like the next is like that next stage or something into like a greater consciousness. But then again, they just take him in and make him a space baby. So maybe that's all there is to it. Well, you would not necessarily be um, totally off base uh, in that um, something that Kubrick said in an interview um, and he hated, I don't know if he hated talking about it, but like <laughs> he did not want to tell anybody um, the secrets of it. He, whenever anybody asked him like, so what really happened at the end of 2001? He'd be like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, but he, he did talk about how the evolution of man uh, as sort of suggested in this film would be something from being unintelligent to being intelligent and, and humanoid to being, you know, possibly a um, man machine hybrid. And then another, the next stage would be being whatever the monolith aliens are, you know, energy beings, unknowable beings, beings that have transcended, you know, our reality. So I think that's all there. What's really interesting is, and it's a funny, sad story, the fate of Hal in this, if you you know 2010 is not a great movie but it does kind of give hal like a second act um and i like that for hal and for what it says <laughs> about humanity but you know it's been pointed out like the irony of us sort of reaching to this science god this space god this sort of next level for us and yet kind of stepping on the face of our own creation artificial intelligence in the process of doing that you know, the, the science god, the monolith aliens have um, given us the fire. They've sort of uplifted us. And in the meantime, we have created our own, you know, beings, um, intelligent machines. And yet we're like, yeah, whatever. We got to get to this monolith thing. And so we're not being good custodians of like our own, um, our own uh, client, you know, uh, beings. Yeah. Yeah, true. Uh, though, I mean, you know, he was acting kind of sketchy. 
He was out of pocket. He was definitely out of pocket. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you got to take care of business. And I love the, um, I love the idea of, and you get this in a lot of, um, this is, remember, this is like the mid sixties. And I'm not saying that like, you know, you can, ideas can be invented before technology, but like nowadays having Captain Kirk talk a computer to death, catching him in a logic loop, you know, uh, having a computer be programmed with objectives. Uh, but then if you can get rid of those objectives, uh, he can really fight crime, uh, the best way, Robocop, um, <laughs> This is like 19, this is the mid 60s. And so they have this idea of giving these astronauts a mission, but also giving the computer a mission. But the men can hold in their heads uh, cognitive dissonance. But the computer, as sophisticated and as error free as it is, hasn't really developed that yet. And so they tell the computer, um, just do your job. But remember, there's this thing that you have to do. And for the computer, he's like, but my primary thing is I'm supposed to tell the truth and every, and I get praised for telling the truth. So how can I keep this secret, a secret that might be dangerous to them? And then uh, error. And uh, he flips out. I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, it's like, well, I mean, it's becomes like I feel like that. Well, in the episode, even it becomes like kind of the way that a lot of people approach it, too. Yeah, it's something that's totally hand waved. With a character like Data, and we want that because we we like Data and we want to see Data pursue his um, his quest to be recognized as as human um, without too much baggage. But Data has ethical subroutines, and it's like, okay, what's that? That's a hand waving thing that we came up with. So you don't ask why Data doesn't try to kill everybody or just doesn't care about people. At some point, Soon gave him ethical subroutines mm-hmm. that can resolve questions like. Well, the captain told me that I have to, you know, lie to Wesley because of an intelligence thing. But when Wesley asks me, I'm supposed to tell the truth to my friend. Like, Data can reconcile those things. But Hal, Hal 9000, for as smart as he is, does not know how to, how to do that yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that, you know, he's a different, he's an early model, you know. Yeah. He's yeah. like lore. I like the fact that he's super curious, though, and he's super self-protective. That would be something you'd have to program into a uh, machine, I guess. Don't divide by zero. You know, you don't want to. That's suicide <laughs> for a computer. So he doesn't do things like that. But as soon as uh, he does have emotional intelligence, though. So when he's talking to to Frank and, and Dave and they're like, no, um, it's it's cool. You know what, Hal? Everything's fine. Even Hal's like. I don't think it's fine. <laughs> and so when they go, he like to knows, the de- like oh, when I... they go to Depot, yeah, to talk about him behind his back, he's like, those motherfuckers are talking about me. <laughs> I think that so goes good. to show like how much they, you know, and the way that's communicated visually is just so oh, is so smart. Yeah, it happens. So great. It's like, ugh, <laughs> you feel it. It it really um, it it just makes you feel like being in that moment i felt like in outside especially because they do all the like pov shots from hal is so good (laughs) yeah he um he says at one point that he's you know he 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 worries because they're talking to him and he's like uh, talking about emotions and stuff and i think it's interesting that there's like two different birthdays in the film um, oh yeah. Well, yeah. both uh, the daughter of uh, of Haywood Floyd and uh, and um, Frank Poole's birthday too, and I think that's supposed to sort of point to uh, ending explained red circle arrow to 
not only like the birth of of Hal as as sort of a, a self aware being, but um, the rebirth of the of the Star Child I, as well. It also goes well to what you were saying about like not treating uh, them like th- these beings we've created necessarily the best and i think it's like the fact that they kind of they kind of take his emotional intelligence for granted you know they're like like they don't think he would pick up on that whereas like maybe someone normally would yeah and he even i feel like he's almost even trying to clue them in at one point because they're talking about the mission and he's sort of talking about the communications thing and some of his um his reservations and he talked he's worried that he's projecting anxiety you know if he sounds like he's being a worry ward or something yeah kind of like why would a computer ask that i feel like he's he's straining to like god i want to tell you guys about the mission so bad but i but i can't do mm. it and and that's where he sort of uh, has a short circuit Ugh, yeah wow that yeah it's so good <laughs> i i love um we, we haven't talked about like the depiction of the technology in this movie um the fact that it's mostly it's mostly um practical technology you know there's no there's no gravity in space. They solve that with, um, you know, in-universe explanations, but also um, just revolutionary uh, filming techniques. Um, you know, you always see any space thing is going to have the reel of, of uh, uh, Frank jogging, you know, in the in the module, uh, and of course the huge turn t- mm-hmm. uh, turntable drum set that they had to build to make that happen. Um, the floating pen, which is all done, you know, practically. Um, just like just amazing, revolutionary, uh, award-worthy special effects in the film. I love the fact that like I was watching the movie, taking notes on my tablet, and then they're sitting and eating their uh, square dinner mush, and they're watching the news, and they're watching their interview on their tablets. And I was like, all right, there you go. Yep. <laughs> That's how it works. Yep. Yeah. yeah. It's good. They, it had been funny, though, like, and a newspaper, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it was a Minority Report. Uh, the uh, Stanley Kubrick movie, uh, no, sorry, the Steven Spielberg movie that is uh, very Kubrick inflected. Um, they have the newspapers that are like, oh, it's a newspaper, but it's got like active computer text, you know, like Harry Potter, like things that oh, scroll. Yeah. It's like, would anybody do that? Come on, it's dumb. <laughs> they should do that. Um, I Before we, boy, have we talked about everything? Let's talk about the last act of the film. But before then, I want to point out that a pod is a spaceship with hands. Yes, and it doesn't do some punching, but it does some. Uh, well, they don't really. I was gonna say ram. Maybe them. it's too scary. Yeah, it does something to to pool. Yeah, to take him out. Yeah, but... it's a it's a more of a, a tackle. <laughs> That's what I assume happened. It just like did, went. It didn't boom. have a knife. <laughs> yeah. Oh, if it had a knife, uh, that'd be good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so, um, Dave's got to shut old Hal down, uh, and you really do, it's weird how, how much empathy you can have for a completely emotionless voice, and how at this point, uh, Dave is, is the computer, isn't he, emotionless to the pleas of, of Hal, uh, but I guess we understand, uh, why he had to do what he had to do. I love it when Hal tells him, why don't you just take a stress pill and just uh, think about it? <laughs> I love that part. And like, you can see like the different stages he goes through, you know? Yeah. Or first he's like, first he's like, he's menacing, but then you realize, oh, he's, he's actually like 
trying he's pleading for his life you know like yeah even before it's like super dark you're like oh no he's like now he knows like he's basically screwed so he's trying to chill him out and then he gets a little bit more desperate and then when his mind is gone and he's you know singing the song i like i cried i was like i've i I was watching the movie i was like okay maybe everyone's jumping to conclusions but like this guy's gotta go like i if i was them yeah you gotta you gotta turn this guy off but then once he started doing it i was like oh but no he's just he's a guy no he's a guy yeah There's a lot of pathos there, and people always accuse Stanley Kubrick's films of being cold and emotionless and cerebral. I think that there is incredible emotion in many of his films, but the emotion is in the motivation behind the actions, and the and the people in the films aren't necessarily going full Leonardo DiCaprio and letting it all be on their face, you know, or in their uh, or screaming or shouting about something because Dave is terrified. Hal is terrified at what Dave's doing, and you do feel that, but they're both, one's a computer and the other is an astronaut who just has to get this done, and he's not thinking about his dead friend. <laughs> yes. flash frozen by space and all the dead people in the in the uh, hypersleep coffins. And so, yeah, I wonder if, like, Leo DiCaprio had ever worked for, <laughs> had ever worked for Kubrick if he could have got that kind of a performance out of him. Right, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely possible. I think... Yeah, it's just, it's also, too, it's just so sparse, like, it doesn't, you know, it's just because it doesn't, with the characters, like, go into every, you know, he's not like, well, professionals. my, my daughter, my, my daughter, uh, she's dead, or whatever, you know, like, they just, <laughs> you're right, yeah. we get a little call or whatever with people's daughters, but, like, overall, we just, you, it like, I like exactly what you said, it's like, it's, we're seeing this moment of of their lives and how they react and how they act and you draw it from their actions mostly yeah um so the final sequence of the film uh where he enters the monolith um, it's sick (laughs) does not say uh my god it's full of stars Uh, he does say that in the book and that is a plot point of the uh the subs the sequel film 2010 but it's not in this movie um yeah, that's crazy. Um, it's there's a whole process as to how they did that that I don't know the details of, but I'm sure it was um, difficult, uh, but an amazing result. And he ends up, uh, I don't know, he sees visions of something. He sees another planet. He see it's blue, so we know it's an alien planet. Um, and he ends up in this weird space. And I think that uh, Clark went into little a little more detail, and I think Kubrick also said in a later interview that it is, you know. These godlike entities, you know, contacted us, invited us in, and then once we got there, didn't really know what to do with us. And so they kind of give an environment to Bowman that, as far as they know, you know, would map on to something he's familiar with, uh, a bed, you know, furniture, some dinner. Um, But his life just sort of, there is no sense of time there. And so it all gets kind of twisted up. But the ending result, of course, is him becoming a, becoming a super baby. And it wasn't until um, recently that I kind of got the thing where it's kind of like the creation of Adam, Um, you know, the um, part of the fresco of the Sistine Chapel by Michelangelo, Um, the thing of Adam sort of laying kind of indolently on the ground and then God in this big thing in the sky reaching out and their fingers touching. Like when you see, obviously there's the early man touches the monolith 
um, and you see that mm-hmm. shot of the sort of planets aligning. Um, yeah. It's kind of, it's very similar to the, I think it's a reference in the end of the opening sequence of um, Strange New Worlds, you know, the sort of planets almost touching. And it reminded me of fingers almost touching like they do in the uh, the creation of Adam. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I can see that. Suggesting, suggesting this, you know, this connection between God and man. And of course, as Dave is, is dying, he's very old and dying in the bed, he's sort of reaching out in that same way to, to touch the, the monolith. That's when it gets its most arty, I think. <laughs> oh, for sure. Because like you could like if you're if you're at this point and you're not already like try, like uh, on this movie's level, I could see how you'd be like, what is what is this? What's happening? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I feel like, yeah, like I like I like that idea. I didn't think about that of uh, like we don't know what to do with him. That that goes more to what I was thinking too of like, like the this isn't how the mission was supposed to go. Like you weren't supposed to like fly up into this thing. You were supposed to like try and communicate <laughs> it to it with Hal or something. Yeah, but yeah send a radio message through. <laughs> Just throw yourself in, you dumb human. What what now? What? Yeah. So they're like <laughs> uh, some filet mignon. <laughs> like there was a whole like if if all went well, it would have been like a rival or whatever. Where they're like, all right, let's uh, have a chat. Yeah, let's figure yeah. it out. But now they're just like, well, you're here. Uh, you want some cereal? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mr. T. Uh, yeah. And, and of course, Sagan revisits this uh, in his novel in the 70s, Contact. Um, I guess you can't really like borrow big ideas. And so he literally has you know, a human also traveling through a, a stargate, ending up with other aliens. Those aliens don't represent themselves as themselves. They take on the forms of people from our lives in order to communicate with us. And it's kind of a more positive thing than whatever it is that happens at the end of this this film. But yeah, it's something that really, you know, leaves uh, it leaves you thinking. And I think that there's something um, there's something telling in the the use of um, the the musical piece. You know, also Sprach Zarathustra. Mm. Named for the philosophical work by by Nietzsche, you know, and the idea of the will to power and the idea of um, sort of, you know, touching this idea, not necessarily of a religious God, but sort of a a higher sort of state of being um, and developing from, you know, a monkey into a man into, you know, who knows what. Um, Yeah. And that that feels like kind of one of the, to me, one of the inspiring messages behind star trek is that Mm -hmm. um even though we we have we we come from something like purely biological maybe not a god like we can find meaning in that in our own evolution you know yeah and and uh, a little bit of uh, entertainment in observing but not interfering with the evolution of other beings oh yeah yeah we're like maybe we are like the monoliths you know I'm glad we didn't talk about the prime directive because we could have talked about that this whole time. Someday we're really going to crack open the prime directive. Hmm. Yeah. We got to get the ultimate prime directive episode. I think whatever that Hmm. is. Probably the, um, the Paul Servino one (laughs) or maybe not. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe not that one. I like uh, Worf in a little hoodie. It's fun. Yeah. No, it's a good look. (laughs) Or like who watches the watchers probably is the is the ultimate one. Oh yeah, that that one's pretty sweet. Though yeah, I don't know. Worf chilling with this guy, that's pretty cool. 
Come on, Worf. You're my brother. Come on. <laughs> well, I'm glad you mentioned Star Trek because we do have to talk about Star Trek. And we'll do that right after this break for a word from our sponsors. We'll be back with more backtracking. Hi, I'm Mikan Hana. And I'm Caliban. And we're the hosts of the Sailor Noob podcast. I'm the expert. And I'm the noob. You're talking into the wrong end of the microphone. Aye, aye. Okay. Every week we watch a new episode of Sailor Moon and learn about monsters, fashion, food, culture, and of course, the Sailor Warrior of Love and Justice, Sailor Moon. All right. Now, what is her rank? Is she an admiral or a rear admiral? Okay, shh, shh. The ad's almost over. We're a couple of magical people, and every week we moon prison power make up a new episode. Better midships. Study as she goes. Please stop that. Sailor Noob is available every Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Shiver me timbers. Okay, we're back. It's time to talk about the Trek side of this equation. It's clear that Star Trek owes much to the works of its sci-fi literary forebears, Clark perhaps chiefly among them. The characters of Trek are often overawed by the discoveries they make in an endlessly fascinating universe. And though TV budgets often reduce the aliens in the franchise to lightly made-over character actors, the idea that the galaxy is full of wonders, unknowable and yet unrevealed to man, is decidedly Clarkian. However, one aspect of the novel and film 2001, namely the presence of the self-aware computer HAL 9000 and the existence of artificial intelligence, has gone almost completely unexplored in the annals of Trek. Oh, sure, there's Data and Peanut Hamper, and there's the occasional precocious computer that Kirk has to talk back into its place. <laughs> but the currently accepted reality of the rise and utility of artificial intelligence is almost never closely regarded in Star Trek stories. Whether this was an oversight or intentional, it's difficult to say. But Star Trek Discovery tackled the issue of the rights and sentience of artificial intelligence in its fourth season episode, But to Connect. You're making progress. I've earned her utter indifference. Aloof disdain is next. <laughs> we may be just at the beginning of our problems. Two options are clear. Approach the 10C directly or destroy the DMA immediately. Boom! We have to find another way. Diplomacy will save the most lives. I am sure of that. I'm not. The decision we make now will have a profound impact. I was thinking about it. Is data the ultimate self-hating android. He hates that he's an android. Oh, you think, like, he should just uh, accept how he is? Well, I guess, well, I mean, like, why not accept that he is something more? I mean, spoiler, that's kind of what we get at the end of this episode, uh, vis-a-vis Zora. But, like, if we're going with the Pinocchio myth, I guess Pinocchio did want to be a real boy uh, pretty bad, and he gets his wish. But, like... Data's like, you know, he's he's more self-hating than Marvin, the paranoid android. Like he's just he always he knows everything about himself. He's very frank about the fact that he's an android, but gosh, he really just wants to to be human. Yeah. Well, I think it's he wants to fit in. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> what it's all about, isn't it? It's about conformity. <laughs> yeah. Data's still a teenager. Uh and he really wants to fit in with the with the click. I think overall um, it's like he wants to he wants to make connections with other people. But to connect. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And so I think, you know, maybe there is a little bit of uh, conformity there. I think maybe they could have done more episodes about how it's good that he is the way he is, you know? Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I get what you're saying. 
I mean, nobody hates him. Well, I mean, sometimes he runs into a problem because a guy wants to pull him apart. But yeah, everybody, all, all of his friends accept, you know, what he is. But he's just like, man, I just want to just be human, whatever that means. Um, why do you think that Trek has never really committed to, until I guess fairly recently, um, having AI characters, exploring the idea of AIs, other than them just being uh, something dangerous, like we see in um, uh, Discovery Season 2 with Control? I mean, I don't know. I mean, what do you think about, like, there, like there's like the Doctor is kind of an, you know, an AI type character. They, That's true. they definitely have approached it um but I, so i don't know i feel like it's both something they've they they have gone for though i guess the both in both the doctor and data's case it is just like you know they they have a kind of a similar like desire to be seen as uh as human so i don't know whereas like now it's it's gone it's gone a different way i'm trying to think about the the portrayal of um artificial intelligences uh intelligentsia in um fiction at the time and you know obviously it had been mined well by uh asimov at that point it would would go on to be um mined by him and he's never he just presents um i think robot intelligence or artificial intelligence as an interesting um, problem to be solved. Um, mm-hmm. It isn't until later that he, uh, like with the Bicentennial Man and his, um, even some of his uh, foundation novels that he really starts to get into like, no, like the, you know, artificial intelligence is intelligence too. Because before that, robots are just sort of like logic puzzles in the way that they're programmed um, that provides kind of drama to the human characters, I think. But, you know, there's like books like I think Colossus came out in the late sixties and that's about like a Skynet like computer that, you know, wants to nuke everybody. And <laughs> there's plenty of computers in the original series that are evil and, and Kirk's got to <laughs> I mean, talk down and destroy. They even make the joke in uh lower decks where it's like, they got a whole archive of those type right. of guys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, just a, a big uh, AI prison that they lock them all into. Um, so yeah, I think maybe at, at just at that point it was it was vogue to we were going through a phase, you know, of, of the killer computer, um, and we're arguably not completely out of that phase yet. But we've definitely started to explore the idea of AI being self-aware, being a, a possibly positive force, a kindred life form, and you know, I think that that's I think Trek should be doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, it, we've got a whole galaxy of people with um, different uh, configurations of uh, silly putty on their faces. And so maybe it's hard to fit, um, to fit you know, machine intelligence or AI into that. You know, you've got Star Trek The Motion Picture, and that's arguably a story about an AI um, yeah. seeking its God. <laughs> it's, it's very similar to 2001, as I'm sure uh, many people have pointed out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I think we mentioned like a, it. It's, it's a reverse 2001. Yeah. Uh, but that's fine. Well, I was thinking, because I was thinking, like, they have, I have felt like they had done it a little bit, like, with Data, and, like, also, like, when, he, you know, he makes a daughter, like, it'll bring in other androids that he knows, and, you know, they, yeah. they talk about it, and with the Doctor, and then when this, when I watched this episode, it did make me think back to Measure of a Man, um, 
And so I, I had a different feeling in that, like, oh, this is like a new type, like a new way of addressing like a similar type of story they've done. You know what I mean? Like, I felt like it it was something new, but it 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 was like you could clearly see it's somewhat inspired by data, I think. Yeah. But what I if data was the ship <laughs> instead? Yeah. Um, it's funny because so this I, I, is this is a bottle episode, right? Basically, yeah, I kind of like that it, about that it's hard episode. to tell these days because everything has a, you know, sci fi. They're in the volume or it's got a CGI background or something like that. But it's basically takes place in two rooms in the um, in the council chamber and in the room where they're debating um, Zora's future. And I. Every it's 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 like a math problem that should work but has some kind of remainder or crashes your computer. I think this yeah. episode should should work um, better than it does, but I don't think it works that great. And you can tell that they went all in on it because they've got these two seemingly unrelated plot lines, and they're both debates. They're both happening in different places, but they literally at the end, you know, cross cut between Stamets's speech and Burnham's speech in order to make the thematic connections explicit. And I don't feel like it works that well. Like, I don't feel like these two situations are as similar as they are um, trying to to indicate. Yeah, um, I would agree with that. I would definitely agree with that. It, it rings a little, a little bit false, or at least a little um, uh, contrived, I guess. I don't mean that like... Um, how that's usually, I mean, it's literally, uh, you can see the strings of them. Trying yeah. To, no, these, these both go together. There were elements too of like, I liked the overall idea specifically in the, the Zora story. Like I, I liked the overall idea of the story, but elements within it felt contrived to me too. Like in, in the sense that you normally mean it as not just the connection between the two. Like, I feel like they just like, maybe I'm just, so, like may I kept thinking of measure of a man, but I was like I felt like they they made a few like leaps of logic and stuff that maybe you could get there, but I feel like they kind of glossed over discussions that I would have expected these characters to have. Something that works in measure of a man, and that they're lacking in this, and I'm not sure why, is that there's a real threat involved to the point where. You're like, what is wrong with this Maddox guy? Like, who, what toaster burned your toast that you want so passionately to just clearly take apart this nice, not joke getting, violin playing robot guy? Like, you just really want to do this bad. And so he is a villain and he represents a real threat. Whereas in this, we've got David Cronenberg. And the entire time, David Cronenberg's like, no, no, let's let's listen to the com- killer computer. Like he's on the computer side the entire and, time. And at the end, he and goes, at the end, he literally says, "I would have fired you, yes. Stamets, instead Which, of getting rid of the computer." I, so it's like there was never any threat to Zora, who, by the way, we don't really even know. Yes, like, she likes she likes Fred Astaire movies. We know that, and that's like all we we don't know Zora as a character. I mean, there's potential for like a, a cool character there, right. but th- there isn't somebody that we're worried about losing here. The idea I like about it is I think it's supposed to show that at least in this sense, 
Starfleet is like maybe more progressive. Like, oh, we sent like yeah. a therapist guy to like emotionally yeah. and that's great that's fine that's great but that's but that's like you know the roddenberry box that's like the roddenberry tesseract it's like we've invented a new box that we can never escape and i think that's a problem with a lot of the, the discovery stories is that uh, obviously we take for granted that we are starfleet and we're good and nobody is ever going to make a bad decision we're never right. going to be in danger yes. of doing something <laughs> wrong and so it's just assumed that we'll work it out and obviously we work it out and at the end we say you're alive and you want to join the crew and everything's great and there's never a point where it could slip either way you know there's never like a real threat in the story and so many of their stories are like that even the other story is how are we going to solve this problem well obviously all the good and thoughtful members of the federation are going to vote the right way and 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 even if they don't, Michael Burnham is going to give an amazing speech about how we've got to connect and they're going to do it. And you just never believe that this could go wrong. You're just waiting right. for you're just waiting for the obvious bad guy with a tattoo on his face to steal the thing so they can run off and do the bad thing. And I I think, too, sometimes with Starfleet, like I think we're get, supposed to get the idea that like like we were supposed to question even the ideals of Starfleet. Right. Like we're we're supposed to like I think it's both believable that Starfleet is like can be a force for good in the universe in like a lot of the Trek series we like. But we also are supposed to put some of the things they say they believe to the test and and also show that like there's not a sole way to interpret it. You know what I mean? So like yeah. sometimes there's no such thing as ethical Starfleet. Yeah, it's like right. That's what that's literally what we're out here to question. And, yeah, and I'm fine with the idea that they, as an organization, are like it's like okay, they're more accepting of like AI, but <laughs> from but I, what I'm led to believe is that they shouldn't be because it's been banned. You know, what I mean, this is like a big well. It's so it's it's banned. So I, I I thought about this a lot. It's banned in service of Starfleet, which you could argue is. A form of racism like you're obviously there are other ai species or machine species in the in the galaxy possibly in the federation so to not let them serve in starfleet is like discrimination right but so that doesn't cronenberg okay sorry cronenberg cronenberg throughout his trial it, it has nothing but respect for zora as a life form which i think is admirable but also shouldn't he be the guy trying to hunt this thing down and kill it and then we convince him no 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 she's good look she right. can dream like those two yeah. things don't make sense I, and, yeah it's and i yeah. think it would have been fine <laughs> if we're supposed to believe that starfleet is skeptical of this because they make a good point which i think they gloss over which is that they, she could just be like i'm going to blow up right now and they could all die and yeah. and Saru has to throw a line where it's like I have access that could cause destruction. I could hit like, the blow up button. No, yeah. <laughs> right. No, you can't actually. Like we've seen many times that it's not just you can't just go computer blow up the ship or whatever. It, there's like a chain of command which they bring up, but to be on that chain of command, they would say like we don't we don't really know Zora, right? So wouldn't you say like yeah. like data? Like, you would have to go to Starfleet. Like, I think, I don't see how they, like, they wouldn't draw the conclusion, like, but instead they go, no, like, we're going to make you a specialist, which means, like, even though we don't know you, and you, and you barely have served, like, you can just keep being a ship, and it's no big deal, and... Yeah, you're a ship, but you've got this code that lets you dream, you have a subconscious, 
And so therefore you are a new life form and not technically an AI. So welcome aboard. And I'm like, is that how that works? No, it wow, should be you. A- <laughs> that ship's got to go to Starfleet Academy. Right. <laughs> Just a big ship sitting in a chair at a desk. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, and so that's why the episode kind of bugs me a little bit because I love all of these ideas. I love the oh, idea. Oh, no, yeah. The ideas are great. Yeah. They're, the decisions the characters make about all of them don't make any sense, though. Yeah. If in an episode of Lower Decks, they were like, we're going to do an episode where a ship, one of uh, the, the uh, one of those Texas class ships or whatever, <laughs> right, goes yeah. to Starfleet to, you know, become part of a crew. Like, I'd be like, fine. That's cool. That's funny. Uh, yeah. Interesting. But in this, they just, they immediately gloss over it. Like, so, like. I feel like in a, I feel like it would be fine if one character was like, well, I could cause destruction or whatever, but like, like as a, like an argument, but what, shouldn't one other character be like, that's way different. Like, does, does Stamets even say that? I think he doesn't well, even say that. He's, he's, well, again, it's the, it's the Roddenberry Tesseract TM. Uh, that's my thing now. Uh, he comes in, you know, oh, turn up the music so we can show she doesn't hear us. Cause I've seen 2001 and like, I, he's set up as the guy who is against all of this, but yet he's like super nice Stamets and he's a hero on the show and we like him. So he can never really take the hard line of like, this guy's got to go. Like Riker's not happy about arguing for Data's uh, non-sentience, but he does it and he makes a really good case out of it. Uh, and he almost wins. Like he almost gets Data taken apart. Yeah, yeah, like he... And they just yeah. can't do that on a show where everybody is like a super progressive hero. And don't get me wrong, I, like you said, I like a lot of the elements of this. It's a little cheesy, but I like the idea that Zora can dream. Like she, there's a part of her brain that is a subconscious, essentially, that makes her different than other programs. I like the fact that she can program herself. Like she can, she just like changes her core thing, which you would think for an AI is like, oh my God, we told her don't kill us. What if she says, mm, no, kill them. But we believe and trust her that she won't do that because we have like context and experience with her. But it doesn't, it all comes out weird. It, you know, it, it's, it, it's, it just sort of doesn't ring true. And I think part of the, of the clue is in that I, do you think the episode gets that with Michael Burnham arguing on the side of this group that they should defend their principles is and and then she's trying to talk book out of doing what he think he knows is right do you think that they realize at all that that's the exact opposite of like what she did in the Vulcan hello where she felt like you know following the principles or at least um having the most effective communication with the Klingons would be to attack them. So I'm going to go against the entire group. Like that, this should be a commentary on her development as a character from the first episode up till now. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure that the series even recognizes that they have, you know, completed an inversion or maybe it's not an inversion because in both situations, she's just arguing for what she wants. She just ha- happens to have everybody on her side this time instead of like last time. Yeah, I think it could be, I think it could be interpreted as that. Like, that she's come along but that's it's not a compelling argument by the way she's like because everyone who's there like seems to like be annoyed with or hates the federation or not everyone but the, those people <laughs> yeah. who don't like them seem to really not yeah. like them and she goes like i know we're not all starfleet but i think we can agree that these its ideals are good 
And I would be like, that's not the way to present it. Like, couldn't you? It would have been like, I know we're all Starfleet, but like, don't we all think these ideals are good? Not Starfleet's ideals. Like those, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like you're presenting it as like, now I I know you're not on board, but like, this is a good idea, right? (laughs) It's like. It's also, they set up, I guess they kind of cover themselves because the president says that she has to remain impartial. And I would argue, I mean, you're the leader of this body. Are you literally, is this just a true, it's not really a democracy because they have, it's a representative democracy. I guess you you were just doing what my people told me to do this. But like, it's a good thing they had Burnham there and she's so good at giving speeches because otherwise, like, wouldn't the president (laughs) give a speech? Is is Burnham as a captain the victim of like 60 years of power creep, like within the captaincy? Because Kirk often gave speeches, but they weren't necessarily speeches that would change or influence anything. He could talk a computer to death. He would talk about how risk is, is our business. And so let's give our bodies over to these consciousnesses. Like he would often like opine on what they're doing out there. But I wouldn't call him like the speech guy. Then we get to Picard. He's obviously the speech guy and he doesn't become the action guy until the films, but then he's got both of those. By the time you get to like Archer, Archer will punch a guy out at the drop of a hat He'll also give an angry speech about how we should be doing this or that. And so he's got all those powers in him. And so now the captain is just everything. By the time we get to Burnham, yeah, she does shoot the gun and swing from the rope and give the good speech. Whereas before I felt like those those abilities would be given to different people in the cast. Do you know what I mean? Right. So now she's like the ultimate... Like, yes, we should get whenever there's a problem, we should go to Burnham because she's a genius who can, you know, Kung Fu somebody and she can do the speech and she can figure everything out. Well, I think it's too, because she is the leader of this group that is no can never be wrong. So she's the most right, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that leads to overly pat simplistic drama, I think. But uh, that's just my opinion. Um so it's it's interesting to note. So obviously, control bad news back in uh, the old timey days in the twenty third century. Um, we've talked about the conspicuous absence of most AI to the and you bring up the doctor. That's a great point. Although um, when the doctor is uh, in his seventh year of operation, he still has to fight for publishing rights for his book, <laughs> and there's a bunch of other doctors working in a mine. So clearly, they're not that evolved on artificial life. 950 years later, or I guess 850 years later from that point, uh, they're like, yeah, we got a ban on uh, AI. You can't have AI in Starfleet. So clearly, like, nothing has really progressed all that much in almost a thousand years. Yeah, well, like, the whole wh- whatever happened there and picked that one Picard season, that oh, messed with yeah, things. Oh, you, you yeah, think, you think the Romulan, uh, the tentacles from outer space uh, really, really fucked things up? Yeah, they probably like, yeah, like, okay, let's let's cool it on this. Two, yeah, two seconds after the last, well, uh, the last frame of Picard season one, I, a crack team of Federation guys come in and just shoot all those gold people in the face. <laughs> yeah, take them out. <laughs> well, I also think this recent episode of Lower Decks or whatever the the one with those AI ships probably is a, probably the b- most compelling factor. Well, now now we can talk about what's going on in modern Star Trek storytelling yeah. and how for all of my uh complaints about not seeing it in early Trek, I don't know if modern sci-fi storytelling has evolved much on the issue of AI and seeing it as being an actual life form. I didn't see that Johnny Depp movie from a while ago. 
uh, where he turns into an AI or whatever. And I guess I never will at this point, mm. but that was pretty negative on AI. Um, Arnold is always the friendly Terminator, but he's always fighting Skynet uh, and AI with all the power. That's more of like a, you know, a revolutionary kind of story, I guess, fighting against a larger power. But still, yeah, the robots are they're still attacking. Yeah. And well, and there's like the Borg is kind of like not necessarily like that, but that's what what makes me think of Terminator is it makes me think of like um, kind of uh, disconnecting yourself from your humanity a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, I, but I don't know if like AI as its own type of humanity. Yeah, maybe that. I mean, I I think that's what they what I appreciate about the story is that it's trying to have a new type of character. I think like the doctor or something that's going to sh- but it's going to be even more accepted. But I think I just think the road they took to get there was kind of yeah. clunky. I do. I mean, I mean, I like the idea of Zora. I think that's a very interesting um, thing, like something about the ship, something about this, the sphere data, which is very poorly defined because the show's got other things to do. But just somehow like a, a, a living, if you will, creature sort of emerging from this um, primordial soup of data. I think that's a neat idea. And I don't know if they've talked about, she's voiced by a relatively successful actress. So I don't know if they've talked about like, you know, having her be on the show, like Zora gets a body or something. It's kind of Mass Effect, I guess, but, you know, steal from the best. Mm-hmm. Um, if they want to continue to do that, yeah, I would like to to see that. But at this point, this is just like a weird break, a weird lacuna in a season where ultimately, what do they do? They go and they make contact with godlike aliens that they don't understand. And this should fit, like the chapters in 2001, this should fit in that like ongoing evolution of this idea of recognizing something as life uh, when you don't necessarily, or getting somebody like the 10C to recognize you as life. But they're all like, I don't know, they're like beads on a string more than they are like a river that flows together. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. It's That's more... my metaphor. Yeah, I, I I can see that comparison like it does feel like it's it they're their own kind of little things i think that there's a reason people sometimes laugh i've laughed about how every star trek show is like what like uh mid-level soap actors can we get you know to uh to play our our crew uh the seven people that'll be our crew yeah and i think sometimes you 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 discover things in actors mid-level soap actors that you didn't know were there other times even if it's just a mid-level soap actor, they know how to show up, they know how to deliver complicated dialogue and do their job, and you you sort of like, um, you know, develop affection for them. But they've done this thing on Discovery where they don't really worry about where the actors are coming from. So they have a lot of inexperienced actors, they have a lot of like stage and, and musical actors, they have a lot of people who have like not done this kind of material. And I don't think it always pays off in the way that it should. Or I don't know. The people that like the show don't care about this. Maybe the people that make the show don't don't (laughs) care about this. But I feel like you get a collection of actors who have to deliver, you know, complicated dialogue or have to at least try to... Everybody's the same. Everybody has the same reactions to everything. And that might be the script. But when they're talking to Zora, Stamets is like, well, I don't know what's going on with Zora. And Adira's like, oh, I don't know what's going on with Zora either. And everybody's just hitting the same beat. And then you get... 
the only guy not hitting the same beat is Cronenberg, and he's not hitting any beats because he's not an actor. <laughs> he's just a Canadian yeah, director. That's what I was saying. So, like, um, it felt like they were going towards Stamets has a very specific insight as to what's bothering about this, and they do that for a bit. But then by the end, yeah. he's kind of like everyone else, where he's like, where it's like. I, I just want it to trust you like you trust me or whatever. And it's like, and he says, and he even says like, I'm not like them, but I'm like, I feel like you're just like all of them. You're just, I don't know. It doesn't feel like yeah. there's enough different views in this. You know what I mean? Like, that's one thing I like about, um, yeah. you know, like a, like in other treks where they kind of are trying to synthesize a lot of different views and they have to come up there's some sort of like moral not even compromise just sometimes it goes in a certain person's way or certain people have to like come to peace with different things but in this it kind of just feels like everyone gets their cake and to eat it too you know can can i give you a really bullshit example of the opposite of that so i've been playing the witcher 3 the wild hunt recently okay (laughs) this is why it's a bullshit example and uh, the writing in that game is great. Like it's Mass Effect level writing. Like even the small side characters um, have a, have a personality. And I was playing, uh, which is weird because like I would imagine they must they must just have like Western writers, right? I'm Poland's West, I guess, or Ukraine or wherever they're from. Um, but you think that like something would be lost in the translation. Sometimes you play a game that you know, like a game that was made in Japan, and the characters talk kind of weird in, in English, but They've got good localization or they've just got like English speaking writers. Um, And they were trying to figure out this problem. And there's like three or four characters and they all have a different, they feel differently about the problem. They've got a different approach to the problem and they're all arguing about solutions. And eventually they boil it down to like one or two solutions out of the four that are suggested. But like people have certain feelings about them and they deride other people's solutions. Or maybe they're like, well, tell me more about that. And then they land on the one or two and the people whose solutions don't get picked are mad, but they're still going to have to help implement the solution because we're a group. Like you could feel four different characters talking about something. This episode and a lot of other Discovery episodes feel like a monologue that is broken up and given to four different characters. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And and you don't – I don't – I do think that the characters absolutely – um, events their individuality and their feelings in different other scenes. But when you get to these like, you know, ham and egger scenes where it's like, we've got to get this stuff out. We've got to establish what the conflict is. I do feel like, yeah, it's just like four people all saying the same thing. Well, especially cause they go, they go through everything and they set it up and they move on. So like, there's the thing like the, the fail safe or whatever, like it's, it's not until the climactic moment that, he like destroys it or whatever, but they do move on from that like pretty quick. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel like something that's on the table at the end. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Well, it's literally on the table. But well, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they they even say like, aren't <laughs> do they say like, aren't you forgetting something? Or I don't even know. But you go, oh yeah, like the thing that he was saying like to blow it up. I like they. I feel like they already moved past that. You know, because by the end, yeah. by the end, he's saying. I want to trust you, but I want you to trust me. And it's like, that's not something I feel like you would say to someone that you were like, also like, I'm about to, I would happily have a thing that will kill you. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I mean? I don't know. It's yeah. And like, 
this is maybe hack, but like, what if he doesn't put it down the entire time? Because he's like, no, like, <laughs> as soon as she uh, vents all the air out of this place, I'm hitting this button, you know? And it isn't until the end that he puts it down because he accepts that she's alive. But that would make him a meanie. Yeah. And we don't want that. And everyone should be and nice I, to each other. Well, you know, honestly, I think they're writing the show that the audience thinks it wants because. Here's another great example, or great, maybe too much, but uh, everybody hates Dr. Pulaski. And the reason they hate her is because she mispronounces Data's name and she treats him like a machine. In the first couple episodes in which she encounters him, and by the end of the second season and she leaves the ship, like they're kind of buds, low-key buds. And she, you know, had she encourages him to bust up uh, Kolrami, you know, when they're playing Stratagema. Like she understands him. She didn't get what he was, and she was, you know, discriminatory and mean to him. And then later on, she's not because she accepts him, and that's like called character development. But we can't ever have that. We can't ever worry that, like, oh, what's Stamets? How much toast got burned uh, by his toaster that he hates Zora so much? It's look, these are just I think it's a it's a side effect of having the story have to continue throughout every episode, because if an episode happens, there's a beginning, a middle and an end. And we pick up next week and we don't know how far away we are from the episode that just happened. Then we just know that, like. Stamets is a robot racist, you know, if if this happens and we move directly on. Mm-hmm. And everybody can't be whatever they need to be to tell the story this week. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I think this whole ongoing story nonsense is garbage. We got to stop it. <laughs> we got to stop it. We're so, I feel so old. Going to hit the button on it. The, the so button reminds old. me. <laughs> yeah, just, yeah, me too. I can't me too. take it. Uh, it reminds me of the movie 2010, uh, which is the sequel to 2001, where they revisit Hal and they give they put a thing in him that if Roy Scheider hits this button, it will like blow up his logic center. And so um, I think they're kind of also if you're a writer who was born in the 2002 or 2003 mm-hmm. uh, and you're, oh, well, what are we doing? AI? Okay, I'm going to watch 2001. Huh, weird. What was the bone? And then like, oh, I should watch 2010 as well. And so I've seen like when people do references to 2001, they often are also doing references to 2010 as well. Oh, there's yeah, a part in 2010. There's a part in 2010 where we meet the guy that programmed the 9000 series. And, you know, the uh, he's talking to both Hal and a different, I think Sal, like a different 9000. <laughs> and they both ask him like, you know, if I die or if I go to sleep, will I dream? And that's, I think, re- supposed to be representative of the idea that they are something more. And that gets echoed, of course, in this with Zora's uh, dream explicitly. <laughs> it is funny that they just like pull up the dream. Oh, she's dreaming of good stuff. You know, okay, oh, nice. that's nice. Uh, she's all alone. She's rolling a big donut and a snake wearing a vest. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, All right. Well, look, uh, this whole episode has been talking about technology, the technology of both the past 2001, I guess, the movie future and the future of Star Trek. And on every episode, we discuss technology, the way that it sometimes helps the characters. It's often the complication the characters deal with. And we want to know how each would be different if we remove one of those technologies or add one of those technologies. We call this our technological exchange. We have a list that we work off of. It is 
the list goes like this. Uh, phasers, holodecks, tricorders, transporters, warp drives, replicators, communicators, shields, advanced medical technology, and androids. Let's roll on our random number selecting device. And I get the number six, replicators. If replicators existed in the world of 2001, how would it be different? Well, uh... I think, first of all, we have to establish, I'm pretty sure they don't exist because they have this like reconstituted food, right? And they don't, they might have some way to 3D print stuff, but they don't have like replicators, uh, energy matter transference. There's something about Star Trek where it's like, there's like the kind of boundless resources almost, even though they're not really, but you know, like, yeah, they don't have boundless resources. Yeah. You see like they're charging you for a phone call and you know, there's a hotel. So clearly they, I feel like if you have a replicator, well, maybe not, but I feel like it's likely that that helps uh, get rid of a lot of uh, want and need, (laughs) you know? Okay, so are we looking that are is it fundamentally changed? Are we looking at a united space force? There's scarcity has uh, there's no scarcity uh, anywhere because we remember we backdate all this. So the Russian uh, the entire planet's uh, Russian communist because Russia would never fall prey to uh, to shortages or anything like that. But at the very least, let's say. There is a international space force. Uh, the Russians and Americans are working together along with uh, other other nations. And that we don't have the Cold War aspect there. But what happens then when they, you know, are digging in Tycho Crater and they find um, they find a monolith? Maybe just that my theory that maybe things don't maybe they have the more um, kind discussion with the A.I., um, and they all get what they want and then they go, then the mission goes fine and they, they go talk to the aliens. That brings up a good point. Was, was Dave Bowman's experience exactly what was supposed to happen? You know, we talked about how maybe the godlike monolith aliens like set this sort of trap, you know, a long time ago and they like just checked it one day and they're like, Oh Oh shit! Something's in the trap. Do you remember what we're supposed to do? Maybe they never really had a plan, or maybe this was always it. You're gonna go in here. You're gonna wear a robe. You're gonna uh, become a baby, and yeah, you know, give you a space baby. Right? right? Maybe it's like, like what, you have. To... Was that always what it was supposed to be? Like, was this their plan? I th- I I think not because I only because I got really hung so up. So even on spa- how... even science god doesn't know what he's doing. Right. Yeah, it could it could be or it could be. Yeah, like maybe it is like we're we we're arriving to give you some sort of gift of like rebirth into a new type of being. But first, you you know, you got to kind of die and oh, OK, you're not you're not old enough. So, OK, we'll keep you you're here. dead. Uh, now you'll be a baby. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just well, OK, wait. OK, we don't worry. We can speed it up a little bit. Yeah. We'll speed it up. Like very literal it's now. Yeah. With editing. Yeah. <laughs> they, they've got the technology of editing. Um, yeah. Not having a, like a lack of resources. Maybe you could. Maybe you could like replicate you know, a new circuit for Hal or something like that. Something that I found was really interesting and I had not read the book. So maybe this is explained in the book, but is the sort of deception with the communications array and what Hal is playing at when he 
suggests that it's going to fail, you know, like we, and I love the ambiguity. Don't get me wrong, but I, you, you think about things that are ambiguous. Like did, was he planning on sabotaging it? Was it really going to fail? Just not yet. And so he sort of jumped the gun and that made him, them doubt him. Was he specifically trying to cut uh, himself and the ship and the astronauts off from earth so that he could talk to them, you know, privately like they did in D pod. Um, like what was up with the communications array? Yeah, it could be either. It was him testing them. That could be see how they would react. <laughs> oh, if they still, if they still trusted him. Yeah. Or I think honestly, it could have been that he just made an error, you know, cause he, He's becoming sentient. Maybe that's part of it is that, you know, is, is being fallible. He can't comprehend what what he's thinking or feeling. So maybe, you know, it's affecting his day to day. And then once he realizes that they, you know, want, want to deactivate him or whatever, he's he goes into self-preservation mode, I guess. There's so much technology like on display and this would have like, you know, in the middle of the space race, this would have driven like audiences wild to like see all this cool stuff that they knew that they were going to have in 2001. Um, but like really one of the messages of the film or something that we see is like technology inevitably, inevitably leads to, to violence. You know, you've got, it's nice that Moonwatcher knows how to use a club, but what do we get? We get dead monkeys. Uh, and then we immediately fast forward to, nukes in orbit you know and we create hal this tool to help us the ultimate tool and it immediately decides that maybe we don't need so many humans around and so um the the dangers of technology is something that we've we've talked about this before a lot on the show that trek will never sign off on uh, you know we're doing a technological exchange segment because trek is very pro uh, technology uh, to the point of blindness and calling out visionaries like Elon Musk, you know, in the 23rd century. Um, so I think like mm -hmm. that's something that the movie, I don't think it's its main focus. I think it's more about that search for God, but it is definitely a side thing that it's trying to say. So if they had replicators and the ability to create anything at any time, like I wonder what they, they would have come up with. If you're not limited uh, with your resources, maybe they just create a big like roller coaster. You know, <laughs> part of me thinks maybe they don't get out there because they just build the sickest theme park, the Great Space Coaster. Yeah, what do we need out out there in space? We got a sick yeah. roller coaster back here. Get it? Yeah, can go, we're only we can going go to, to the moon. Maybe I don't Jupiter know. to mine stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, I hate to keep being the guy that says, you got to check out 2010, but 2010 does, it answers a question that like, everybody's like, don't, please don't answer this question. We don't need an answer. And it's like, I'll answer it. And, you know, it's part of the, part of the action here is that there is life on Europa, right? There's, there is uh, primitive life in the oceans of Europa. Mm -hmm. And so part of the godlike aliens mission is not only to, foster races that they think would be, you know, good additions to the intergalactic community, but also to keep them from hurting other uh, races. And so um, that's a totally new side thing that comes in in that second movie. Uh, we don't know how they feel about Hal. Although, interestingly, uh, in the books, uh, Hal uh, eventually is merged with 
uh, Frank Bowman, I think he becomes um, Halman. Oh, uh, see, that's that's what I think you're saying. It he didn't want to reveal it, but it's like partially about you know humanity and technology coming yeah, together. Yeah, the adopting of yeah it's, of adding technology to to the human body. Yeah, it's almost like well, and I think what I like about all aspects of it is it sometimes it's like it shows like the kind of some of the grittier sides of these certain things, but more overall presents it just as it is. It's just like a reality of life, like the vi- the violence of, you know, the, the technology and stuff like that. But I, I also think just with the idea of the, um, the, that, that adding, answering that question, I think kind of fits alongside that still too. Yeah. Like what, you know, great. We're going to get technology, but like it doesn't change what your intentions are and to be fair to Moonwatcher and his tribe like they just wanted their water hole back and maybe like uh beat up the next leopard that comes around okay. but their intent their intent was to do harm i found this amazing thing we could crack open coconuts with it but no i'm gonna crack open some skulls yeah and, and so, i think so it's, maybe the... it's significant that the end of 2001 that um that dave is he's just going in there to explore like he's his life has been threatened his friend is dead the computer's dead everybody's dead but he doesn't go in there with like a gun. <laughs> like when, once he gets there, he doesn't try to shoot shoot the alien in the face. You, He's just like, you did. I'm this. here to figure out what the fuck this is all about. I've gone through all of this. I need to meet the goddess now, please. Yeah, and they yeah. respond in kind. Yeah, yeah. So I, I definitely like the like. It almost could be like um, like to move forward, we become like a Borg like being but it's not like yeah. good or bad it's just like it is what it is you know yeah i think so i think so and i think it being a baby is cool because i think if you look at it's, it's yeah but why wasn't it a cyber baby cyber baby yeah well <laughs> i think what's important is that it's like familiar because we see in the beginning of the movie we see the dawn of man but it's like you know apes kind of look like us but they're they you look at that and you're like that's not a human you know and yeah. so now i think whatever the space baby will become by the end of whatever its existence is will probably resemble nothing. It won't look like us at all. You know, maybe it'll just be a cube or something. Yeah. And that baby wasn't, there was a, 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 a photographer who was like um, taking pictures of um, the babies in the womb. That was kind of a fad back then. Oh, saying so they didn't put a baby in space. <laughs> no. No, but I mean, it was inspired by, yeah, it was inspired by the work of that photographer. Uh, give me a space, baby. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's talk about the uh, episode, but to connect. And if we remove replication technology and honestly, boundless resources from the world of Star Trek Discovery, what happens? Uh, let me posit something. It becomes a way better episode and possibly a better series. I th- I think... Um... No personal transporters, no, uh, you know, uh, holographic com badges well, uh, and all that stuff. I also think it like it's kind of something they're trying they were trying to do with like there was the burn and now we're putting things back together. So and I, yeah. I can see that being a reason for them going a lot like doing things that sometimes you wouldn't normally expect to see in like Star Trek or something like it's Voyager all over again. It's them teasing the idea but that maybe things aren't going to be so clean and great and yeah and then because backing out. that would be perfect for example they could go okay we have determined zora is like a sentient being and deserves to be treated with 
you know, respect, but we, we can't just, we can't just say, okay, you, you're, you're now the ship. You are a person and you're now the ship and you can go on these missions, even though everyone else, you know, went to Starfleet or whatever, but then they could come in and say, (laughs) they could come in and say, Hey, but this, this ship is the only ship that can do this. We need this. Like, it maybe it's breaking protocol, but maybe we got to do it for this mission, and it can, and they could still do it. I'm not mad that they did it. It's more of like, then it be it would have actually added some stakes to it if they were like, if they actually talked about it and questioned it. You know, it'd feel more real. I think. Um, having uh not boundless resources, um, would make the possibly the situation with the DMA more serious. Um, God knows in our new universe, if uh, Tarka can even create what he wants to create, but, you know, without the ability to just replace ships and things that have been destroyed by the DMA, um, the preservation of resources becomes more important. And a thing that is literally sucking up resources, stealing minerals from our parts of space, uh, might be more threatening to the fledgling Federation where they're like, look, I, you know, we can vote on this, but we have to stop this thing. You know, we've only got so much stuff to rebuild uh, the Federation the way we want to. Um, also, like not being able to just beam up a a, a kill switch for Zora um, would might make it more interesting. So then part of like Stamets's role in the episode is like, OK, you guys keep talking about good, good. Keep talking about this. And then he runs out and like crawls into a Jeffrey's tube and he's like climbing through the guts of the ship, like trying to find the box that he can put a bomb on or to like blow up you Zora can even if it goes wrong. Do an episode where uh Starfleet wants him to build one and he's it's actually sponsored and he's you know there's like a moral conflict there. He's you know, where he can Oh my god, that's so much better. Yes. Why didn't they do that, Gooey? Because everyone's got to be nice cuz we are Starfleet and we're all nice. But he can he's even he's nice because he says no at the end, right? He this is this is the um this is um uh short little guy uh Bashir's role uh in the second half of DS9, right? Like bad people keep coming to him and saying you don't know how important it is that you have to do this. And he's like, okay. But then by the end of the thing, he's like, I'm not inter Arnum linoleum aluminum. I'm not doing that. Are you crazy? And th- yeah, that would be perfect. Why, why does Cronenberg have to be a nice guy? He comes and goes, look, I don't know if you know this, but your ship is alive I... and she's going to kill all of you. So you need to build a bomb <laughs> to stop that. And so the whole episode is like him going, do I build the bomb? Don't I build the bomb? And then he could stand up at the end and be good. That That's so much better. I think I it, it's exactly what you're saying. It's the show that people think they want because I think they're making it with the old criticism. I don't even know if it's criticism, but the trope in mind that people have mentioned of like the bad moral. And yeah. I think they're like, no, our show won't have that fatal flaw. The old Star Trek's had where an admiral yeah. could come in and be bad. That Yeah. The idea that authority <laughs> is corrupting. I don't think so. No, no, no. Yeah. I think like that's, that's just with a lot of things now where it's like, we got to remake it and take out the flaws that aren't really flaws. They're essential or like part oh, of certain stories. So frustrating. Right. Sorry. It makes no, no, no. You, you make a great point and it makes so <clears throat> much sense. And that is, I think every time we talk about discovery, we have to try to fix it. And 
Uh, I think that's another uh, thing that goes on the work order for uh, fixing discovery. Yeah. Oh, man, that's frustrating. Yeah. All right. I want to well, like anyway. it. I was watching it and I like <laughs> elements of it. I was like, oh, this could be so cool, you know? Ugh. Yeah. They'd have to stop off and buy cat toys for grudge. You can't just make them up on the replicator. That's the answer to that question. <laughs> that, was, that was a nice scene. Cat toy. All right. Well, uh, yeah. And I did like the, I don't know if this applies to the rest of the episode, but she says, you know, I, I can only control the, control the toy. I can't control the cat. I was like, all right, give yourself a high five for that. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Uh, don't know how it applies to the rest of the episode, but, uh, okay. Well, I think that's it. I think we've covered everything that we could possibly attempt to cover for this movie and this episode. Should we tell people what's coming up on the next episode of backtracking? Yes. So in the next episode, we're, I, <laughs> speaking of things that are, are hard to encompass, what's coming up on the next episode? We're talking about Star Trek. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll just talk about Star Trek, you know. No, we're going to talk about the, um, they're, they're the influence of, uh, the, Horatio Hornblower character as the inspiration to uh, Captain Kirk and like that kind of uh, adventure. So we're going to we're going to talk about the novel Beat to Quarters and then Star Trek. We're just going to talk about Star Trek. Yeah. um, Beat to Quarters uh, is the American title. uh, The Happy Return is its uh, UK and Commonwealth title. uh, If you are trying to read along with us, Uh, it's a short Novel. I mean, it's almost a novella. Uh, it's it's about as long as um, as Red Badge was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a pretty quick read. Uh, it's pretty engrossing. And yeah, we will talk about how uh, the character of Hornblower influenced uh, really all of the original development of Star Trek. So we'll be talking about Star Trek and talking about Horatio Hornblower on the next episode. Yeah, just start start. There's got to be it. There should have been a TOS episode. Maybe we picked, but. It's probably fine. <laughs> yeah, but I am grateful because we've had some very pointed uh, sort of um, exegesis of uh, of some of these episodes. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about Star Trek in a broader sense. Yeah, I that's think. true. Definitely at this point, looking back on, geez, like three, four years of our show, um, maybe this will be something of a retrospective of, um, of our work here on the podcast oh, true. as well. Yeah. I look forward no to that. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it for this week's Backtrekking. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, tell a friend and follow us, please, at, at Backtrekking on Twitter and tell us what you think that we should look at in future episodes. And Gooey, tell the people where they can find you online. I'm on Twitter. You can find me at GooeyFame. And I, I'm at, at K-A-1-I-B-A-N on Twitter. You can find all of the material and shows on the Just Enough Trope Network at, at Just Enough Trope on Twitter. And I wanted to uh, put a small plug in here for one of the podcasts on the network. It's a revival of a podcast called Craft to Services, where we talk about uh, the quote-unquote bad films of cinematic history, films that uh, critics rejected but audience, uh, audiences embraced, which often features um, cult films, um, unappreciated masterpieces, and just like, you know, personal favorites. Uh, that show is back up and running. You can find more information at craftdeservices.com or at craftdeservice, no S, on Twitter if you're interested in that. And that is it for us. We will see you soon. And until then, keep on trekking. Trekking.